This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Trail podcast where we talk about all people doing crazy extreme stuff across the world. Usually we open up with a little bit about what uh, Mary and I have been doing. Um, I've just been in Sichuan. Mary's been running as always, ticking over the miles for her next impending victory probably. But we, the person we have on this week has uh, sort of blown both of our, uh, our achievements out of the water. Um, who, who have we had on this week, Mary? Yeah, so we have a man named Simon McCartney. Um, we People in Hong Kong may not have heard of him, uh, but he is a famous mountaineer. And his um, other side of his life, his professional life, has actually touched probably a lot of people in Hong Kong. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, he um, he is the designer of the light show, so millions of people watch his work every night. Uh, but back in the 70s, he was a very famous, accomplished mountaineer. Him and his best friend Jack Roberts uh, put up two new incredible routes in Alaska, one up Mount Huntington and one up Denali. The Denali, both of them were hard experiences. I think they, they did. They were going alpine style, which means you only take what you can carry, rather than going up and down, up and down, setting up a new route called siege style. Uh, but they ran out of food on Mount Huntington, still managed to get off. Buoyed by their success, they went for a new route on Denali and. After running out of food, Simon got cere- cerebral edema and was close to death. They fortunately came across another two climbers and they started having to make decisions about do they go on, does Jack and the other two climbers go on, do one of them stay behind and try and stay, save Simon, which was looking less and less likely by the moment, um, but they all, they all managed to make it through. Simon was on Mount Denali for 29 days and he didn't eat for 10 days, the last 10 days of that it is as close to death as you can come and after that he just gave up climbing it was just too much of a harrowing experience and he didn't speak about it again for another 30 years apart from a little snippet here and there to friends he just didn't share the story and he didn't and he and he fell out of contact with jack and then he uh decided he found on a uh on an online forum that somebody was looking for him and he thought that perhaps he was about to reunite with jack it turned out he missed him by a fortnight and Jack had died of a climbing accident. And it's incredible. It's incredible talking to Simon and just after all this time, it's still so raw to him. He's, he's close to tears at points and it's very unique on, on the podcast that we've had just having somebody with that sort of experience. But I mean, you hadn't heard of him before. Were you expecting this on the podcast? No, not at all. There was an incredibly heartfelt interview um, and it's just very grateful to have him share such a such a raw part of his life that he's definitely still processing after all these years and then himself is already fascinating um and just to make it clear to uh listeners also the the light show that you mentioned just now is the light show in hong kong the light show that goes off every single night uh with dozens of buildings lighting up with music that tourists come to hong kong for um and that they remember hong kong for and so he simon is the guy behind that um designed it, came up with the idea of setting off fireworks off of rooftops, which he will talk a little bit more about later. Um, and so this definitely all makes for an action-packed, heartfelt, emotional, profound interview. Um, so Yeah, so we've, um, during the interview, we concentrate a lot on how he feels, how he's processed it over the last 30 years. We don't really explore the story of actually what happened. 
But if you do want to hear about what happened, it's in a very heartfelt book called The Bond, which details both expeditions and the bond that he, bu he built with the climbers that uh, saved his life and Jack in particular, which is an incredible read. But if you want to hear more about the actual story and not so much about how Simon is uh, experiencing it all this time on, I recommend that. But for now, let's hear from Simon. Uh, welcome, Simon. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It's uh, it's great to have you on here. It's, uh, I've wanted to chat to you ever since I read The Bond a couple of years ago. Um, I find it so strange, you know, The Bond, you, you didn't, you had no idea that people in the climbing community were sort of looking for you or like, thought you disappeared. Do you ever sort of reflect on the irony that your work, the light show, was is so public, it's viewed by millions of people every night and yet nobody knew where you were, it's sort of hiding in plain sight? It's a bit melancholy, actually. You know, um, <laughs> I, I really believe that um, Jack was dead, and I think he thought the same, and we were looking for each other in vain, and then probably both gave up because we didn't want to find the negative answer. You know, The, the style of climbing we, we had adopted was not sustainable. I underestimated him. You know, He was smarter than I, I thought, and uh, he managed to just tone it down and be the great climber that he was for the rest of his life. And, um, you know, climbing communities sort of tribal and I don't think they think about um, any of them, any one of them becoming a person that would ever design a light show for a city. It's just too weird, you know. They might design a new climbing shoe or, or, or a new diet or, or something really organic. But my life took a completely different direction and um, we lost each other, so... What sort of efforts and when did you stop looking for each other? What, what do you mean by looking for each other? I saw him alive again in 1981. Um, you know, I was still um, sort of a little bit crippled from the injuries that I'd sustained on Denali in 1980. But I was really pleased to see him. And he, he turned up in London with no warning. Uh, you know, there was no internet then. There was no Facebook. There was nothing, you know. I just got a phone call and said, you know, hey, man, I'm in London. You know, and I'm here with Jim Bridwell, who was one of the best um, big wall climbers um, in Yosemite at the time. And I was delighted to see him. And, and uh, Judy, my wife at that time, we, we went and had dinner and, you know, Jack decided to stay and hang out with us for three months. And uh, Throughout that period of time, I think he tried to put some of the things that went wrong on Denali to right, you know, that it's, it's pretty tough having to face the possibility of leaving your best buddy to die. Um, and his solution was to go climbing again. And I wasn't having any of it. I realized that I was done with it. And, and the, well, I realized why I went climbing. You know, the only reason, you know, you go to the mountains for many reasons. You take pictures, you have great comrades, the view's amazing, the environment, and all of that. But there's another reason. The reason was I wanted to, as an arrogant young man, I want to blow everybody away and, and double the odds each time. And there's just no way that. I could see us doubling the odds and getting away with it. When did you sort of come to that epiphany of like self-reflection on why you were doing it? Were you aware at the time or was it only later? Uh, it was a little bit later. I mean, I, I was so preoccupied with getting off Denali. I was on the mountain for 29 days uh, in the same clothing, uh, which apparently uh, was rank, uh, I've been told <laughs> afterwards. Um, you know, and I came off with broken bones and... and Cerebral edema is a kind of weird altitude sickness. It goes away quite quickly. I don't think there's any lasting effects, at least not that I can tell anyway. Um, but lying in hospital, I started to wonder about it. And then 
you know, being back in London after having been to Australia uh, for, a, for a holiday, I began to realize that maybe I had no climbing ambitions anymore. And somebody said to me, I said, you know what, Simon, if you, you and Jack, had, you know, you hadn't got subaludema and he hadn't got frostbite, you would just would have jogged over the summit of Denali and you would have gone to the Himalayas and killed yourself the next year. And I think that's the way I looked at it then. That's probably what would have happened. And you know what? I lost some of my best friends in 82 and 83, and they all went to the Himalayas and doubled the odds and never came back. So it was a good decision. Yeah. And you decided to quit climbing and put that behind you after like pretty soon after the meeting in 81 in london right Cause it was yeah something like that you know it's not something you come to in an instant because it was a lifetime change i was simon the climber i had no other identity that was the reason i got out of bed every day and ran a marathon you know and where i went to the gym and you know tortured myself because that's what i was and then i was completely lost i'd moved to australia i didn't know who i was um I took up sailing, and then I, I found cave diving again. You know, cave diving was kind of a little obsession from my teens in, in Great Britain, and I discovered that you could go cave diving in Australia, and I did. And I pursued that vigorously until it became too stupid. Presumably, cave diving is dangerous as well. Why did, uh, why did you take up another risky sport? If, it, if it's just, if the risk is the same then what's the difference between climbing and uh, cave diving in terms of the choice you're, choice you're making? Oh, there's no difference at all. Um, you're just exploring the envelope of the same problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's a DNA thing. Why would you take up offshore racing? Because uh, it's a buzz. So what you were looking for was a clean break from I, climbing itself? Well, I, I don't know that I, I'd really thought that through so carefully, but I'd made a break and... Cave diving just filled the niche perfectly because it had all of the same features. It had the same features of com total commitment. You know, if you mess up, then you could die. Um, I don't know why that's attractive, but uh, it was. And I had a hell of a time through the late 80s. We made some great discoveries. We created with my friends, the, we discovered the biggest cave in, in mainland Australia by diving. And, um, you know, I, I look back on that really fondly. Strangely, I quit cave diving because I thought that I was encouraging so many young people, and I, young, I was only 30-something, you know, I was encouraging young people to take it up, and I wasn't sure that they should, and I was trying to stop it. Um, what do you think of young people now when you see the likes of Alex Honnold or other alpinists doing, uh, like Uli Steck doing inc incredible things that eventually he found the edge? Do you... Uh, do you think, well, I, I get why you're there, or do you think, reckless, you shouldn't be there? No, I don't think that. Um, you know, if that's your DNA, that's what you're going to do. And uh, is it reckless? Others put those kind of labels on. I've never met Uli, but I wasn't surprised at what happened to him. I have met Alex, and he's kind of a regular guy, and now he's made that movie, you know, Free Solo. We, we, we see you know, so deeply into that individual. He's got a house now. He lives in Las Vegas where I was on business. Uh, I, I don't know him that well, you know, but he's bought a house in Las Vegas and I haven't seen him do anything so so uncomfortable as soloing El Cap. I, I was looking at that movie on a plane 
on the way to America recently, and I couldn't watch it the first time. You know, I got the sweaty palms and the twitches, you know. Uh, you know, Tommy Caldwell said it right. He said, like, you know, regular people watch that movie and just say, you know, Alex has got it. You know, he's, he knows what he's doing, so he's safe. But real climbers look at it and just go, oh, my God, you know, this is, I can't watch, you know, the, the, the crux of that climb, the boulder problem. You know, he fell off it two or three times when he was practicing with the rope and then to do it. You know, anyway, I, I wish Alex all the best of luck. I, I met him in a, an American Alpine Club dinner in Washington and we had a whole lot of hairy-chested um, uh, presentations by climbers who were bigging it up for themselves. And Alex changed his PowerPoint throughout the evening, realising he had to go the other way and he talked about teaching his mum to climb. And I thought that was awesome. <laughs> that is great. When you decided to pick up cave diving, um, Bonk was saying that's also a risky sport to, to, to go for. Is it the risk that keeps you coming back for more? certainly focuses your attention. Um, cave diving something you've got to plan down to. It's a bit like Alex, you know, climbing half, you know, El Cap, you know, he's planned it down to the last thing, you know, and cave diving's got some technology in it, but it's the same attitude and uh, it's very satisfying. You know, you're a little bit daunted when you... you, you... A friend of mine said to me something very wise recently and he's still cave diving. He visited me in Hong Kong and he said, I always wanted to be an astronaut because that's the only way you could ever go anywhere that no one's ever been before for sure. And cave diving is actually that because you'll be the first person that's ever been there for sure. And, you know, you can, by linking an underwater passage which has stopped all of the other cavers before you, you pop up in this amazing underground world that no one has ever, ever seen. And that's addictive. So you said um, a few minutes ago, sort of when you come to the conclusion to stop climbing, it's not a it's not a moment. It, it takes a long time to come to that decision. But you did go to you did go to a crag in Australia once, do one last climb, and then just give away your rack to the nearest guy and, and leave. I did. Was that um, that that seems like quite a definitive moment? How did you feel in that in that moment? Oh, I think you're right. That was the moment. I saw these two young guys struggling to to achieve their ambitions and they just didn't have enough pieces of gear to do it. And I was bored and I became interested only by watching them. And so, you know, I lent them the rack and said, you know, that's $1,000 worth of equipment you don't have. And I watched them send it, you know, first time because they had the gear and I, I just couldn't take it back from them really. But I have a confession to make. I'm going back to Alaska next year. I have a year of pain in front of me because I'm 10 kilos too heavy and many other medical problems as well. But I've decided to go back and climb a minor peak, uh, one that has a fantastic view of Denali from a particular perspective that's important. And I'm going to hope and try that I can get my ass in gear to go and do that. What, when did you make that decision to go, go back? Well, I have a friend called Jack Tackle. He's um, not well known in Europe, but he's one of the most famous uh, American alpinists. He's a little bit older than me, and he's been always prodding me, you know, like, you know, come climbing, and we'll go together, I'll look after you, and all that kind of stuff. And I've always rejected him, but um, uh, he, he wrote to me a little while ago and said two, two friends of his 
um, from Tucson were going back to the Ruth Gorge to climb a mountain called Point 11300, the most uninspiring mountain name you could ever wish for, but it's exactly opposite the north face of Mount Hunting, which was the first climb I did with Jack in, in 1978. So it's, it's the arena view, you know, one is immediately opposite the other. And I said, well, if they wanted to, and he said, oh, you know, could, 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 could I lend him a book or something? I said, man, I'll send them both a book. I just want the pictures because I, I, I have another book in mind and I, I want that view. And then, then, you know, almost in jest, I said, I said, well, what you need to do is get two more friends to go and climb Cahiltna Peak, which is immediately opposite the southwest face of Denali. He went, you know, man, you've got to get your ass in gear. You come and do it with me. I'll take you. And I relented and gave in, and now I'm sorry, because today I did 20 kilometers and I'm really sore. And, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've got a year ahead of me. I've got to stop drinking as much as possible. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, um, I've got to make sure I don't let him down. Um, what are you worried about, uh, not physically, but like emotionally? You'll be back out there for the first time since quite a traumatic incident, staring at the location of the traumatic incident. Has that crossed your mind? No, it's okay. You know, um, I know what happened on that climb and I'm planning to do nothing like that. And I'm going with one of the best climbers in the world. If, if indeed I can, I can get my shit together. You know? um, so it would just be wonderful to, to be, I'm not a religious person, but the word altar comes to mind because Gehiltner Peak is maybe two miles line of sight, halfway up the southwest face of the Dali. It's actually part of the same ridge, the Cassine Ridge that comes off that face. And it's just would be magnificent to stare at it. And I've done it from aeroplanes, um, but they won't let you land on top of things in, in in Denali National Park in helicopters very sensibly. So if I want to get that view, I've got to earn it. I'm going to try. Do you think it will be cathartic at all? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I think most of the catharsis is over. When I wrote The Bond, it was a very emotional thing and I found it difficult to talk about because of the circumstances that I discovered Jack's death. Um, but yeah, there's there's levels of cathartic, you know, and I think that I'll enjoy if I can do it. I'll certainly enjoy sitting there and, and just remembering. And how are you preparing for the challenge physically? You mentioned you are running twenty kilometres, or you, you did run twenty kilometres today. Well, it's, it's, delete the run. I, <laughs> I, I walked uh, twenty kilometres. Uh, when I can run twenty kilometres, I'll let you know. Um, you know, I've got to really be careful that I don't hurt myself. You know, I, I work seven days a week. I'm a businessman. You know, my idea of sport for the last six or seven years is go yachting, and that's no sport at all because when you're old, they let you steer the boat and drink beer. You know, there's, there's no exercise. So I've, I need to make sure I don't hurt myself. I live on Lanta, so that's a big advantage, and, and I can go out the door um, at five o'clock in the morning if I can possibly stand it, and my dog looks at me like, a, why are we doing this now, <laughs> you know? And, you know, do two or three Ks before I go to work. And the weekends, I've got to get into it. Balance is a big problem, I've discovered. And uh, coordination. I used to be coordinated like a cat, and I've discovered tragically that I'm not. You know, so. how do you, how, is there a way to get that back? I don't know. I'll find out. Uh, I bought myself a pair of rock climbing shoes and thought I never thought I'd do that again. And um, I'm going to go bouldering and just see if I can hang it together. I mean, what, what I have in my Kiltner Peak is not difficult. It's just where it is. It's 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 um, spectacular. 
but yeah, I'd like to be able to. Be fun to go do a new route, wouldn't it? You know. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd be, it'd be another. Would be a first. You, a new route for you or a new route? Well, I did you a new route on Kilton the Peak? I mean, there must be a way up it that somebody hasn't done. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, Jack will be 66 next year. We could call it Route 66. I'm very <laughs> fond of that road in America. So, um, yeah, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Are you surprised at uh, any sort of stirring of drive and emotion that just having that goal has provoked that you thought was perhaps dormant or dead? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite shocked at myself, actually, because I thought I was quite comfortable being fat and, and working seven days a week, but I discover that I'm not. And that's good. It's going to do me the world of good. I mean, if I can't do it, uh, I can't. But at least I'll be a lot fitter than I am now, and uh, maybe I'll live longer because of it. Mm. You know, that's, that's it's all good stuff. You know? um, just being in Alaska is amazing. It's not like... Uh, I was in Trento in the Alps last week, for the Trento Film Festival, and it's it's amazing to be in Italy, you know, and the Italian Alps. You know, I've forgotten how beautiful that is, and how fabulous the food is, and you know how, how nice everything is, and so civilized. Alaska's completely different; it's the Wild West, but it's great in the same the same time. Last time I was in Alaska was 2015, and we went flying, and we flew around Denali a couple of times, and over Mount Huntington, we landed on a glacier. Um, but it was the the Alaskan Bluegrass Festival was actually going on at that time in Tarkeetna. Now, Tarkeetna is a village with a population of about 400 people and maybe 800 dogs. Mm. If I can paint a picture. I know it's possible to buy a pickup truck without a gun rack in it. I just haven't seen one <laughs> in Tarkeetna. You know, it's that kind of place. People live for the minute. Uh, you know, hey, buddy, where you come from? You know, you talk funny. You come from Canada? Yeah, you know, no, no, I come from Australia. Wow, where's that? It, it's just a great place, and um, it had a huge impression on me in 1978. I thought I'd walked into a movie. I'd like to walk into another one. Yeah. So another large part of your life, you said, is, is your, your business these days. How, how did you go from climbing a lot to designing light shows? What, what was that process like? Poverty was the main problem. Um, you know, when I gave up climbing, I took up cave diving and messing around some point I realized that I needed to take it a bit seriously and buy a house and you know and I did and I discovered work in about 1980 something you know I moved to Australia because um, it seemed like a great idea I'd been there in, in 1980 I'd looked at it and, you know most Australians bore you to death with you know it's so beautiful and you know kangaroos hopping around and you know you go oh, okay, I'll, I'll look and it was all true, you know, it was just you could go skiing and swimming in the ocean in a day if you had a car fast enough with enough gas to drive you from the mountains to the sea. And I fell in love with it. I've lost track of your question. Um, the transition yeah, from the transition, climbing exactly. to... Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I don't know. I just discovered work. I thought I need to make some money. I need to buy a house. Did you come from a design background or did you have to teach yourself from... You know, my mother was an actress, and I used to spend a lot of time in the theatre. And uh, at school, I made a decision that I was going to be the lighting guy rather than the guy on stage. Um, and so, no, not really. I don't come from a design background, but that just happened. And, and in Australia, I fell in with a company that um, did laser shows, and uh, I helped 
I think I helped them, you know, develop into a company that did attractions, like we would do water and lasers and fireworks and sound and light. And we did jobs all over Asia and Singapore and Seoul. And, you know, some of these things were huge. So I was able to um, I was able to get my design education at other people's expense because they were paying and I could experiment. And, um, and then this amazing opportunity happened in, in Hong Kong. We were visited in Sydney. I was working for a company called Laser Vision at the time. And um, the Australian government said, you know, we've got a VIP that would like to come and visit you. And uh, she's the deputy. We get this right. No, and she was the commissioner for tourism. It was Rebecca Light. And I thought, my God, you know, what am I going to say to this person? I got no idea who the, you know, I'd, never, I'd been to Hong Kong many times, but I had no feel for it. And Rebecca is a charming woman. Um, I think she became Minister for Housing or something. Anyway, I find something to talk to her about. And, and I said, well, you know, lighting buildings might be a good idea because you've got plenty of them. And we've just got this new technology that's like it's almost possible to light a skyscraper. And I, I hit a nerve without realizing that I had. And long story short, we got a letter a little bit later and said, well, you know, would you like to compete for a tender to write a study report about lighting buildings around Victoria Harbour? And we were able to win it. Um, and I did. And I wrote this beautiful book and how to light 32 buildings. I never thought in a moment that they'd do it. And I was fighting bushfires in Australia where I live you know, I have a house there to this day. And they said, oh, we need you back. You know, we need you to come to LegCo and answer some questions. I thought, you know, okay. You know, so I went, uh, singed fingers and dirty and apologized. You know, like yesterday I was on a fire truck, I'm sorry. And to my amazement, they decided to do it. And I never thought that it would ever happen because it was so ambitious. And, and it worked. Um, they managed to persuade 24 building owners, both government and private, to light their buildings and synchronize them with music. And that was how I came to be in Hong Kong and why I'm here still. It's a, oh, it seems on. really hard to imagine now Hong Kong without this light show and like hundreds of thousands of people watch it every day. How, how does it feel to be the person behind that? Um, I have mixed feelings. You know, the, the first one was really fantastic. Um, I don't want to. You know, they're, they're actively improving the one they've got. But we had fireworks. You know, we, we had SARS was on our side. Um, I was pulled aside by my boss in the Tourism Commission. He said, you know, Friday night he rang me like at 11 p.m. I think, oh, my God, you know, what's happened? He said, can you be in my office at 7 tomorrow morning? Uh, okay, you know. And the question was, if you had a bigger budget, what would you do with it? How could you justify spending the money? because we have some funds because of the SARS epidemic and we're trying to do anything we can to kickstart the Hong Kong economy. And I thought about it for about two seconds and said, rooftop fireworks. You know, this is what we do in Sydney. We've been doing it for years. We haven't ever burnt a building to the ground, but it really kicks the show, you know, when you fire fireworks off the top of buildings. And he went, oh, you know, God, that's going to be difficult. We've got so many rules and regulations here and we're so careful in in Hong Kong, but we managed to persuade them that it was going to be okay, and we did it. And I've still got a lump in my throat, you know, from sitting on top of... We rented an office in Star House, which is an old, old building, overlooked Star Ferry, and I was sitting on the roof. I'd never seen a complete rehearsal, ever, so I was extremely nervous. But to hear the crowd 
of hundreds of thousands of people just go, wow, you know, when the, when the first musical cue let those fight was, was fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm past it now. You know, it's for others to... Um, Is that a similar feeling, though, to um, the praise that you're getting now for your book being called an instant classic um, by uh, some pretty big names? Um, still doesn't sit right with me. You know, I, I, I wrote that because I owed a debt to Jack, you know? And I pinch myself, really, when people say stuff like that. It's difficult. Um, do you, did those emotions that you have now, were they, how deep were they buried before you started the book? I'd be a liar if, if I said there wasn't a month that went by that I didn't go there for a moment, you know. You can't forget stuff like that. And, um, but it all came back in a rush. You know, when I, I thought that he was alive for a moment and then found out that he wasn't. In that moment, what was it like? It was hell. It'll never go away. Missed him by two weeks. Just two weeks. So, um, so explain, sorry, just what, how you missed him by two weeks. Oh, look, uh, a friend of mine... Um, had eked out of me a little bit about the story. You know, he, my friend Alan um, is a keen web surfer, and I'm not. And he discovered that I'd appeared in a book written in 1980 called Surviving Denali, and he knew this all this time. And Alan and I used to go around the world building theme park shows and attractions and so on. And we, we nearly had a hiking accident in Lantau. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it, from a mountaineering background, but <laughs> we nearly <laughs> fell down Linfar Shan or something. We took a shortcut, you know, the, the guy that draws the brown dotted lines is not a hiker. He's got no idea what he's drawing. And, and, and we tumbled out of the weeds, you know, through the grave sites. And I said, Al, don't you ever, you know, take me down. You know, and he said, oh, come on. Compared to your epic on Denali, that's nothing. And I went, how did you know about that? I never told you. So we went and had lunch and had a few beers and I told him a bit more. So he, he knew about the fact that I'd climbed two first ascents in Alaska with a guy called Jack Roberts, and that was about the extent of it. And then two years later, he sent me an email, and um, I look at my personal email on the ferry on the way back from Central to Muiwo, and I thought maybe he'd sent me a piece of music or something. And he said, hey, man, you know, you should go to this website. Uh, there's somebody looking for you. I thought, well, I don't know any money to anybody, you know, so when I get home, I'll, I'll look. And it was a link to a climber's blog called, um, I can't remember, doesn't matter what it is, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a famous climber's website. And on there was a post from somebody I didn't know saying, um, Jack Roberts and Simon McCartney climbed two amazing routes back in the 70s and 80s. And Jack wants to know where he is. He's disappeared. You know, Does anybody know where Simon is? I thought, oh my God, you know, just the person I'd assumed had passed away long ago is alive and looking for me. And he was the closest person, you know, that I've ever had to me because we shared so many difficult moments. But it was late in the evening, you know, it was 10 o'clock at night, and I thought, well, I can't wake anybody up in America, I'll have to wait. And 
Then I looked a bit deeper and I searched in the site and I found out there was another post that said Jack Roberts, rest in peace. He'd just been killed in a climbing accident at the age of 59. And in a climbing accident, um, I mean, do you think that's sort of the way he would like to go? Or was that a cliche that uh, doesn't really do service? I don't think he wanted to go, but... Um, if you've got to die of something, it's better than cancer, isn't it? You know, mm. it, it, it. He climbed every day of his life. Uh, he married a lady called Pam, and Pam and I are now great friends. We see each other whenever we are in the same continent. I was in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago on business. I felt terrible that I didn't have time to go to Boulder and say hi. You know, and, um, So she flew over, we had dinner. And I think that she knows Jack much better than I do because she was married to him for 25 years. And uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. You know, he would have preferred to be like that rather than just fade away. You know, one of my great fears is, is just getting sick and old. You know, uh, I don't want to fade away that way. I lost one of my best friends last week. And um, <clears throat> he appears in the book. Smiler, as his name, he was the happiest person on the planet, and he never told me he had cancer, and we lost him. So yeah, falling off a cliff is better than having cancer. I'm pretty sure. Going from sort of telling a couple of details to somebody over a beer to writing a book is quite a big leap. Why did you decide to go down that route to tell your story rather than tell it to somebody individual or close to you, or even? psychologist or therapist? Well, I don't think I'm a threat to society, so I don't no, need no. a psychologist. <laughs> I think it would be for your benefit rather than the wider society. You know what? Um, I, when I found out what had happened, I, I, the first person I contacted was a climber called Mark Westman, and he was incredibly kind to me. Turns out that he's not just anybody. He's Denali Mark Westman. He's climbed more routes on Mount McKinley than anybody else, and he's a historian. You know, he's about, Mark's about 45 and also a cancer survivor. Um, and he explained to me that the history of those things was enigmatic. You know, those two climbs were, were something that ought to be recorded. And I thought, well, you know, if I can do a good enough job, there'll be some royalties and I can share those with Pam and, you know, and one thing led to another. And then I, I got drawn into it. I had to write it. And I had no idea how to write a book. I wrote 300,000 words. Don't ever do that. That's a Bible. You can't sell them. <laughs> Um, but uh, with some great help, I was very lucky with uh, a UK publisher called Vertebrate. And um, even though the owner of Vertebrate had no idea who I was, he recognised something in the text and, and we managed to edit it into what has become the bond. And, uh, uh, apparently it's all right. Did you go back to di diary entries from back in the day? Or? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, the diary entries were absolutely crucial. I mean, I, uh, you know, it was... It was fascinating to see what Jack had to say for himself because when you write diary entries, you're incredibly honest with yourself. You know, you don't tell lies to yourself in diaries, right? So I knew only latterly, you know, what he was really thinking, uh, and he was more honest with himself than he was with me. You know, to be frank, on Mount Huntington, he, he admits to being, you know, quite scared, and I was too. But there's just no point talking to each other about that because you just open a can of worms you just don't want to go into. You know. Like we're stuck up there, we can't get down, we've got to finish it. Or don't don't get into the 
you know, the, the, the gritty part of it. But on Denali, I had uh, cerebral edema, which is not very different from brain damage. It goes away. You know, your brain swells up because it's trying to make more oxygen go into your brain and you get intracranial pressure, so your faculties uh, deteriorate rapidly. And uh, there are bits that I can't remember, but other people can, you know, either Jack's journals or, or, or Bob Candico's journals, the guy who saved my life, really, on, on Denali, you know, have really vivid descriptions of what happened. And um, I intercut them in the book because I, you know, th their memories were more important than my blurred ones. And, and uh, it, it was, it seemed to work well to have, you know, three or four voices in a book, not just mine. You've got to be pretty clever if one voice is going to be sustaining a book. Um, as you read them for the first time, um, what was that like? How did that, how did that feel? Oh, man. Um, you know, I hadn't seen Bob Candico for, 33 years or something like that and for him to share those journals with me was, was like a shock I mean it's exactly I think the answer you're looking for him is incredibly emotional you know because you remember you never forget anything actually um, there's like chemicals in your head you know show, show me a picture and that opens two doors show me a picture and some text that opens six doors and have a conversation about it that opens a hundred doors and People have said to me, you know, how do you remember all that stuff? And I, the answer is gradually and with a lot of help from, from everybody else. Um, Bob's probably my best friend now, I suppose. You know, I see him once a year. He lives in Bellingham, which is just south of the Canadian border in Washington State. And he delights in sending me photographs of his retiree's adventure where he's just spent two weeks in the Grand Canyon rafting down, the, you know, or, or watching the trees change colour in the Rockies or kayaking around Baja in Mexico or, Bob, please don't send me any more pictures, you know, I just get depressed, <laughs> you know. He just sends me, so you should retire soon. I'm too busy. Um, yeah, so that it was amazing to read those things. Jack's probably more than Bob's, to be honest, because... I could never talk about them with Jack because he was gone, but with Bob I could. So, when you, how did, did, did you struggle? I mean, you, you thought about the, what went on, you know, you say at least once, once a month. Do you think you have, you have sort, of, sort of PTSD or is that uh, over-exaggeration? Um, no, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's, well, there are levels of it, you know. Um, my father came back from the war you know, we had a very different adolescence, my father and I. You know, he joined the Indian Army and he was fighting the Japanese in Burma with Gurkha regiments. And at the same age of 21, I was having the time of my life. You know, no one knew what PTSD was then, but I'm sure he had it. And um, why wouldn't you? you know? um, but I can answer that question in a different way. Mike Helms was... so. Jack and I climbed the southwest face of Denali. We put up the hardest route on the biggest face in North America. And then I get so sick that I can't even stand up. So two other climbers join us at about 19,500 feet. One's Bob Candico, one's Mike Helms. And they see the situation for what it is. You know, I'm dying. Um, someone needs to stay with me, a very brave person. And the other two need to go for help, if any help could be ever had. It's really questionable whether at that altitude anybody could do anything. But Mike went with 
Jack. And I think they both had PTSD for the rest of their lives because they felt that they'd gotten off easy. Um, they were the ones that ran for help, leaving us where we were. And it's completely wrong. I mean, it was a totally logical decision. Um, but fast forward to a couple of years ago, uh, Mike and Bob win an award called the Solds Award, which is uh, awarded by the American Alpine Club for heroism. And I think it's only then that Mike managed to, to, to kick the monkey off his back. You know, the, he felt like he hadn't done enough. Um, we got spotted climbing down the Cassine Ridge, which is the most unlikely thing to ever achieve. We didn't eat for 10 days. And he knew that once we'd started down that a rescue was impossible. And he said to me that it was like having a knife plunged into his heart because there was nothing he could do. So <clears throat> they were honourable people. And um, I think Mike's okay now. You know, he's, he's, he's over it. He realised that there's nothing he could do. Do you think reading your book helped him? Oh, yeah, we had a ball. Um, reticent at first, he's a very shy person, but we all went to Banff together. We went for a reunion, first of all, in, in um, near Seattle. And we only went there because Mike and Bob live in near Seattle, one in Snohomish and one in Bellingham. And, uh, Bob said, I, I can't leave until tomorrow night because I have to give a slideshow to the Mountaineering Club locally. We went to the slideshow and um, Bob told the story from his point of view and then introduced the survivors in the audience because there we all were. You know. And we had lunch and we had many things to drink and like old climbers do. And by the time we got to Banff and I, I won the award, uh, it was like a party. I had all my friends around me and the survivors from Denali were all there and I, th I think it's all good now. It's great. Mike had never told his sons or his wife about any of it. And it became like a, you know, like, like a mystical thing that, that he'd repressed all those years. Like he felt he hadn't done enough. You know. Good on you. So you said that when you set out writing this book, you felt like you had a debt to pay. Um, what would you like climbers reading that book, your book, to take away from from the text? Oh, I, you know, um, climbing's evolved into, um, into many specialised things now, you know, like sport climbing, which is relatively risk-free. And, um, and then at the other end of the extreme, free soloing, you know, with Alex Honnold, you know, doing amazing things. Um, but alpinism is the one thing that remains the same. It's the only thing that remains the same, and it... And it, it it's the thing that you do with you and your partner and you depend utterly for your survival on the connection between yourselves. And we must never forget that, you know, um, whether we're a Red Bull-sponsored athlete or, you know, well, it's an unfortunate thing because um, David Lama got killed recently. You know, you know, the reason you go climbing is is important and... The bond between two of you is really important. And showing off and satisfying sponsors has to come second, really. You need to know in your own head why you do it. And I only discovered why I did it after I stopped. Do you think it would have changed things if you'd realized earlier? 
why nah. you do it. I was an incredibly arrogant, competitive young man. You know, really, I was. I, I, I wanted to show people that I was, you know, uh, only realistic. You know, but I wanted to show what I could do. You know, and, and we would have gone straight to the Himalayas and tried to find something bigger and tried to climb that in alpine style. There's, there's, there's a, a long list of ghosts, unfortunately. Well, um, I think we've uh, come sort of to the end, but thank you very much, Simon, for coming on and not only sharing your story, but sharing it in such an honest way, um, which I can attest to uh, anybody who's uh, considering on buying a climbing book is the same way that you've addressed the story in The Bond. It's an excellent book, and anybody interested in it, any sort of adventure story, climbing or not, should take the time to read it. So we had a lot going on in that interview, so many emotions and stories coming through. But one thing I guess we learned was the revelation that Simon is going back to Alaska to revisit this climb. Did you know about this, Mark? Uh, no, um, I think that we are perhaps the first people to learn that. It's quite incredible. It must be a really, really big decision. A bigger decision than giving it up in the first place, coming back to it. And it's really interesting to sort of hear that there's a swell of emotion that he didn't even realise. All of his dormant feelings, uh, incredible. It's all incredible. I'm sort of gobsmacked by it all. Yeah, likewise. And I wonder what the climbing community, how they all respond or yeah. react to this news. Um, I don't think Simon himself will care very much. He's doing this for himself, for sure. Yeah, um, well, certainly I think people will be interested. I mean, the book's been a, an instant classic, as people uh, people have called it. Um, so people know about him now, um, if they didn't know about him before. So they're going to be very interested, and it's going to be like, amazing to, to, to talk to him after he's done it and find out what, what it was like for him staring at the scene of such a definitive moment of his life from the position of, of, uh, of a climber rather than in a plane. I wonder if it's going to spark any anything that he didn't realize was in there. Mm -hmm. So we definitely have to keep tabs on Simon as he trains and prepares himself physically and emotionally for mm. the challenge ahead. I mean, puts our athletic... Uh, well, I don't have any accomplishments athletically, but no, I'll take them. Really. But, but you, you have a few. Are you uh, training for anything in particular now? No, just a couple long summer months of enjoying the miles, the runs. Um, no races in particular. Don't really feel like racing the moment so I'll just go and enjoy miles with friends kilometers yeah I don't have any plan but I was in Yarding last week uh, for the for the sky run uh, I mean it sounds quite pathetic now but I was going to say I really struggled with the altitude <laughs> but uh, the top point there was 4,700 meters and you went straight up essentially uh, yeah basically well I, the, even the, the the flight landed about 4,400 and I've never got off altitude into altitude I've gone up to altitude but never like stepped out and everybody's like <gasps> And there's like oxygen available at the airport, but then you went down to 2000 something and didn't go up and acclimatize properly. And it was a whole sort of line of the walking dead of people who hadn't acclimatized, leapfrogging each other as they sat at the side of the trail trying to get their breath back. And then you had to run a race. We, oh yeah, well that was in the middle of the race ah. at that point. Uh, like the race starts at 3000, but then uh, the highest point is 4,700. And first 18K flew by in under three hours and then the whole thing, which was 32k took eight <laughs> so you can see how slowly at some point i started moving but it was amazing i recommend anybody takes the time to go up to yarding it's so cool there. it's so beautiful it's right on the border of tibet so you've got the culture there with the prayer flags and um a lot of te tibetans leading donkeys and uh 
horses up to the checkpoints to keep them stocked because they're just so inaccessible and then you've got these beautiful white peaks towering above you it's incredible it, it, it's it made me so happy even when i wasn't happy as i struggled <laughs> through it <laughs> yeah so definitely that just reminds us of how many stories and yes yeah, just stories and memories that can be made out there in the wild and i'm really glad that we had simon on this week to tell us about his story yeah and to all you hong kongers and the rest out there make sure that you uh keep doing incredibly wild stuff in extreme sports and let us know about it via twitter with mary hui yep. at mary hui and at adventure agnew